0: August I'm Kieran Murray. You're all very welcome to this evening's event. This evening is the second of three events about Dublin and the Great War. And this evening we're going to look at the suffragettes and women in the workplace during the war. We'll have a selection of songs from the era, from Maureen Cronin of Angolian Singers. We're also joined by Fanula Walsh. Fanula wrote her PhD on the socio-economic, political and psychological impact of the Great War on women's lives. She's currently a fellow in TCD writing on Irish women and World War I. But we begin this evening with Neve Murray. Neve is a principal of Rutland National School in the north inner city. She's one of the co-founders of the Countess Markovich School, where she was its chairperson from 2013 to 2016. She holds a master's in equality studies from the School of Social Justice in UCD. But before we go to that, we're going to go to Maura for a song. And Maura, I think this one is Quilting?
1: Yeah, this song is called The Quilting. And I suppose briefly, it just talks about the Holloway Banner, which was a banner started life as a quilt sewn by a group of 100 women who were imprisoned in Holloway Prison for marching for votes for women during the time when the suffragettes were agitating
2: for votes for women. A thread in a needle, a warp in a loom, the picking and combing of each cotton ball. The twisting and spinning, all making a choice. The joining and pressing, all finding a voice. Finding a meaning long to endure. Far better is wisdom than weapons of war. Millions of stitches holding the parts And thousands of threads they pull at our hearts Some silk, some satin, some silver and gold Base cotton and linen, their stories unfold Just footnotes of history, unwritten but known Each stitch is a tear or a victory sown yeah. <sighs> In small neat stitches or untutored hand Like the Holloway banner remembers the stand Of the purple silk names on the green and the white From prisoner to citizen to demand women's rights Remember the struggle, rejoice in each name Each fragment, each fibre was pierced to proclaim Each stab of the needle will gladden the hearts of those working together the sum of their parts It's a call to us all the young and the old to remember the stories this quilting has told. Each stitch needs another to take a firm hold and more cotton is needed than threads of fine gold More cotton is needed than threads of fine gold
0: Thanks very much Maura for that beautiful singing Okay then to Niamh Marie Neve. maybe can you give us a picture of the suffragettes say uh, the outbreak of the First World War in 1914 what was the movement like at that stage
3: I think in a nutshell the movement had actually kind of slightly deteriorated its peak was 1912 so by the time the war broke out, things had changed. But I suppose it's, you know, with anything around women's history in Ireland, particularly around, you know, the early 20th century, it's really important just, you know, for everyone to kind of remember the three different movements. There was the labour movement, the nationalist movement, and the suffrage movement. And at different junctures, you know, they collide, they work together, and then they break apart the personnel are kind of interchanged they move between movements and so that's kind of the most important thing is that there wasn't just one suffrage movement that stayed throughout the course of the war fluctuated. So I suppose maybe just to go back, the history of suffrage in Ireland would start in the eighteen late 1800s at Anna Haslam and she was a unionist and quite middle class. So I suppose suffrage in Ireland was very middle class and the women who were, you know, the ordinary women of Dublin wouldn't have seen it as something that would have been relevant to them until the time of the 1913 lockout. So the lockout brought the women together in the soup kitchens in Liberty Hall and the Labour women were working there, the suffrage women came Came and they wore their votes for women badges. The Labour women wore their union badges from the Irish Women's Workers Union and the nationalist women, they all came together. And that's when, I suppose, it was the opportunity for the different classes of women to come together and for the working women of Dublin to see that suffrage was an issue that was important to fight for. But maybe in terms of suffrage, you know, 1912 is the year for suffrage in Ireland in the sense that the Home Rule Bill was up for debate and the suffrage women who were really led by Hannah Shee Skeffington thought well here's our chance to get women's suffrage if we get home rule let's make sure there's a clause in this to ensure we get suffrage and they were badly let down but also that year the year that when this happened and they They were let down. Um, Hannah and some of her friends threw stones at glass windows in Dublin Castle and got arrested. So it was the year that things turned militant in Ireland, whereas in England, with the UK, suffragettes had been militant already at that point. 1912, about a 1,000 members in the Irish Women's Franchise League was the organisation. And that's when it was at its high point. So just before the war, things had, the lockout happened and labour rights became quite big in the city of Dublin. So suffrage almost took a slight back seat
0: and then um were there women who were pro war at the beginning was was that have been a thing that would have been Part of the the general feeling that war was a good thing at the beginning and they'd all be home by Christmas, that that kind of thing.
3: Yeah, I think in a sense, if if you were to ask me that about the most active and the most known women like Helena Maloney, Kathleen Lynn, Countess Markovich, I think that the way they looked at things was from the nationalist perspective. The war is an opportunity for us to get Irish freedom. Suffrage really took a back seat you know, and at the time when, in 1914, when Redmond, John Redmond called on, you know, the Irish men to join the Great War and it caused the split in the volunteers, but it also caused a bit of a split in Cumann na Amman. So it just started in April 1914 and the war broke out in August. So in August 1914, the more moderate women left Cumann na Amman to support the national volunteers. So the war actually kind of radicalised some within the women's movement um, from the outset.
0: And you mentioned um, Haslan there as one of the Original but she came from a unionist background. So was there a kind of difference again, was there a split in the suffragette movement between unionists and nationalists?
3: Um I can't say for for you know in, in detail, but say the Irish Women's Suffrage and local government organisation, the original group would have been quite middle class and there would have been a lot of unionist women, so they wouldn't have, say, supported the war. Whereas the Irish Women's Franchise League came out strongly against the war and Hannah Shee Skeffington, her husband Francis, James and Margaret Cousins, they were the people who were behind the Irish Women's Franchise League. (laughs) Louis Bennett also supported them. But when the war broke out, I mean Hannah Shee Skeffington took a really strong line against it and some people were very critical of her for doing this and they saw this as kind of almost inhumane because the women in Dublin were asked to do relief work in the hospital so Anna Haslam was in the Red Cross Hospital in Dublin Castle, you know, and it was seen as humanitarian work and there's Hannah Shee Skeffington being political about it and this was criticised, you know, and Sorry, she, I'll just read out one of the quotes that she said at the time. So Hannah Sheeves-Skeffington said, militancy by women has been condemned, but no one thought of denouncing the far greater militancy of the present war. So she was trying to make, I suppose, that argument that, you know, she would, would have been a pacifist violence is wrong. So it's very much, um, there's so many different personalities, different people and you know, it's kind con- of—it's very hard to say in that sense.
0: Louis Bennett was a woman, not, yes. not a man, but there were some men. Who, who did support that.
3: Yeah, yeah, and I suppose in terms of suffrage in Ireland, Hannah would be the number one person and her husband Francis was, was really the next name associated. And obviously, as everybody knows, he was murdered during 1916. When he was killed, he was wearing his Votes for Women badge. It was taken off his body. You know, it was really, really horrendous. And the fact of, he was a big loss to the women's movement, his death. But also after his death, Hannah went on a year and a half speaking tour around America. So she wasn't there in the Irish Women's Franchise League to keep the momentum going and Louis Bennett took over as the editor of the newspaper that they had the Irish Citizen so Louis Bennett is she was another big figure and she said during the war to Hannah she said um You know, the women's movement's falling to pieces, kind of fair play to you, keep going in in that sense. And one of her quotes was very good. She said, I suppose when the necessity of knitting socks for the war is over, the next order will be for us to bear sons. So she was quite strong. Anti war. Yeah. And
0: again, was it something like you mentioned the badges and stuff? Was it something like the Repeal the Eighth campaign or the marriage equality? Would you have seen people with the green, purple, and white colours? Was there badges? Was it an obvious thing?
3: Yeah, it's a tiny little badge. And in fact, um, Hannah, Hannah Shee Skeffington, um, her great, it's her grandniece, um, in. In Galway Michelin, they did replicas of them for um to coincide with 1913. So I actually have one, I was delighted. It's a little tiny little badge with votes for women in orange and 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 green. And they would have, I mean, the, the you know, the main people in the organization would have worn them as a badge of pride and as a as a as promo, yeah. I mean, it is a good parallel to make with repeal the eighth, yeah,
0: yeah, okay. What about then, um, maybe just to bring in Fanula a little bit, uh, when. There were lots more women at work when women had jobs. Did it make them feel like they were entitled to vote?
4: You do see a bit of that, actually, particularly in people working in areas related to the war effort. So there's a sense of we are giving our duty to our country. We are doing patriotic war service, and yet we are not citizens. We do not have the same rights as men who are soldiers. And so there's a very explicit um, linking between service and citizenship. And so people um, demanding the vote because of their of their war service, but you do also so so the war kind of gives more reasons for women to have the vote in the sense that they say if if the war hadn't broken out, if women had the vote, the war might not have broken out. So it's sort of a you know women would never have voted for this war.
0: And so the women who believe that there may not have been a war if there had mm. been women in politics didn't envisage a Thatcher. At that no, at that stage. No,
4: certainly um, not. Or a Theresa May in Gibraltar. Maybe um,
0: <laughs> Maybe to go back a bit, uh, with all the different political groupings at the time, uh Niamh, was there was there a sense that some would have been much more favourable than others? Was the national party on Redmond more Conservative, or was Sinn Fein more open to this? How, how did that fit together in the politics of the time? Yeah,
3: I mean, Redmond was very conservative, and I know that I think Hannah Shee followed him to Roscommon or somewhere down the west of Ireland. The northwest was considered a very much a black hole for suffrage. There wasn't much happening around, you know, Roscommon, those kind of counties. So when um, Emmeline Pankhurst came over, I think it was 1910 or 11, they brought her up there to try and curry some, some, some um, interest and enthusiasm among the people. But Redmond would have been, you know, very much, very conservative. And I know one of the historians um, whose name, is it Senia Peseta? Is that her name? Senia. um, Would have said that um, the Irish Parliamentary Party, actually, it wasn't even that they didn't... um, you know, give women much credence, but they actually saw, set out to alienate them because they never, you know, really brought them into the fold. And then after the war, when the nineteen eighteen election happened, and the Irish Parliamentary Party gets wiped out and Sinn Féin rises, um, you know, they they're the only party that didn't approach any female candidates to run when it was February nineteen eighteen when um, it was announced that women could stand, or sorry, could vote, and then in October that women could stand. So a lot of the big names you know, a lot of the women were approached and Sinn Féin approached Hannah Shee's Geffington to stand, but it was in North Antrim. It was a unionist ward and she knew there was no hope of getting elected and she felt there was a, a feeling then with the women that they felt that the political parties were being tokenistic. So again, you can draw your parallels with today. And sometimes, you know, political parties will do that. Um, the Labour Party asked Louis Bennett to stand and she said no. Uh, Charlotte Despard stood in the UK but didn't get elected. Uh, and then Markovic did get elected. And a huge part of the reason she got elected was because of, she got the nationalist vote. And she did, I mean, she was, Hannity Skeffington called her a mild suffragist. She was involved but not heavily involved in the, in the movement.
0: And you mentioned the North West being a a kind of a black spot and North Antrim not being the kind of place to go. Was Dublin the place to be if you were a suffragette?
3: I think so. I mean, from from what I know, Munster would have been quite pro the war. And then in Belfast, um, because the Belfast, um, the Women's Social and Political Union, which was the Pankhurst's um, organisation in the UK, when the war broke out, they took, well, initially, they actually said the war is God's vengeance for what women have been subjected to and then they very quickly changed their editorial stance and supported the war so they closed all their offices all the women in the UK who were who were in prison for suffrage activities got released so they closed their Belfast office so the Belfast branch then was left kind of flailing and then some people from the Dublin branch wanted them to come down but there was the Unionist Nationalist so in a sense Dublin would have been the place to be in in, you know in that regard yeah
0: (coughs) And in the kind of big house, you know, the the kind of uh, the in the wealthy middle class, the the landed gentry of the era, uh, was there any support from there? Were there women with time and education who would have supported the cause?
3: I mean, there would have been. You know, it was quite a mix. And in a sense, particularly with the the original grouping, and then there was a loose federation of all the suffrage groups. It was quite a middle class, um, but those women some of them from the big houses would have been unionists so they would have supported the war so again suffrage was seen as it should be on the back step and I suppose within the nationalist circles you know, they were very unhappy with the women's suffrage movement during the war because they said well a free Ireland is what we should focus on because a free Ireland will naturally enf- enfranchise its women, this is a pointless um, thing to be fighting for because yeah. of course you'll get the Would vote. it have
0: done, it, it, the, the hypothetical kind of question um,
3: I don't think so because it took a while, and it was even after with the with the free state and when things got quite bitter, it was it was still postponed until after. It was nineteen March nineteen twenty two. There was a suffrage debate, and they they it was postponed. The
0: so when suffrage was introduced in nineteen university in, in nineteen eighteen, 19- was it then kind of lost again? In, no, in sorry. For ni- in
3: 1918, it was for women over 30 who had certain oh, yeah. property rights. And then when it was for universal for everyone over the age of 18, um, it was brought up in the in March 1922, and sorry, it was voted down and the main politicians didn't support it. And I know Constance Markievicz would have got up and gave quite a famous speech in the doll And it was later, after um, the Free State had been voted into being, um, that it, w- it was given universal suffrage. And again, it was Hannah Shee-Scaffington saying, you know, well, women can't vote for the free state, but we can vote. They can't vote. For, you're not going to allow us to vote for or against the free state, but you'll allow us to vote when you've already voted us into it. You know what I mean? So it was all quite...
0: And in 1918, then, towards the, the end of the war and the anti-conscription movement, was that an important part? Was that something that women played an active role in?
3: Yeah, I mean, the anti-conscription day was called Law Na Man and it was organised, as far as I know, by Common Na Man, but more of the Irish Women Workers Union, the working class women, came along on the day and there was a big petition signed in City Hall and there were thousands of women and there were people from the Catholic Church, the Trade Unions movement. Like it was very much a very disparate group of people and it was seen as probably the last great, you know, unifying um, movement in Ireland before you know, obviously, um, the War of Independence and the Civil War and everything else. Um, some people would have said that, you know, in a sense that this is the other argument that when and Finula would know more about this than me. That you know, the Irish Women Workers Union pledged not to take the men's jobs during the war, and in a way, then they, that ended up that they copperfastened their their inequality as kind of second class by by doing that, and they were doing that to be generous of spirit and support the men. Was it celebrated
0: when it finally came in? was it was it a big deal that actually had been uh, passed into law in 1918 for the election
3: I don't think it was I mean from what I would have read you know the Irish women's workers union the Irish women's franchise league you know they had newspaper headlines and they were delighted but in the wider scheme of the the newspaper coverage at the time I don't think it was I mean it was more the rise of Sinn Fein who and the demise of the Ar- Irish Parliamentary Party they were seemed to be the main focus you know, na- nationwide rather than the fact that a woman had been elected, which says a lot about where society was at the time.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay, then we'll leave it there for the moment and we'll come back to that again. Sure. Maura, can we come back to you for another song?
1: Sure, so this one is a song called The Soldiers Have Come and a Man. I think it was more maybe, it was written by Brian O'Higgins and more kind of making the point that the women of come and a man had an equal part to play. I know it wasn't the case all across the board. But the idea was that they fought side by side with their comrades who were men. So the third verse is about how they're going to be equally celebrated, which I find
2: kind of sad because anyway, they weren't. All honour to O'glean oh, the heron all praise to the men of the race who in times of betrayal and slavery saved Ireland from ruin and disgrace but do not forget in your praisings of them and the deeds they have done they loyal And true-hearted Comrades The soldiers Of common man, They stand for the Honour of Aaron As sisters In days that are done And they'll march. With their brothers to freedom, she had sight of a common man. No great-hearted daughter of Erin, who died for her sake long ago, who stood in the gap of the danger defying the of foe, was ever more gallant or worthy of glory in high-sounding run, than the comrades of Oakley the Heron, the soldiers of Kamanaman. They stand for the honor of Aaron as sisters in times that are gone. And they'll march with their brothers to freedom. Shiad Sidhuri man." Oh, I beat the heart of our mother. The day she has longed for is nigh when the sunlight of joy and of freedom shall glow in the eastern sky and none shall be honored more proudly on that morning by chieftain and clan than the daughters who served her in danger the soldiers of common they stand for the honour of Aaron As sisters in times that are gone And they'll march with their brothers to freedom Shiaid saithuri, come on man
0: Hauling. Okay, we're going to have a look at women in the workplace and going to speak to Fenella Walshfield again. Maybe to start, just give us a kind of a picture of what it was like, I suppose, what jobs did women have? And even again, maybe how was that kind of very different from 100 years on from how we are today?
4: Yeah, so 1914, only about a fifth of Irish women were in the paid workforce. We're talking about 19%. And the majority of those that were working were in domestic service. And a few other sort of traditional female professions, actually ones are still the same today, such as nursing and teaching. And very few in professions such as medicine or solicitors or even clerical work. They were very male dominated. But it must be remembered, of course, that Ireland in 1914 was very much an agricultural country. The vast majority, over three quarters of the population, lived in towns with less than 2,000 people. So most people are working in agriculture and on small family farms. And so there's a huge number of women that are working on their family farms for no formal payment. And so they're not counted as paid workers in the sense that we think of today, but they are very much contributing to the economic finance of their family. So that's outside of the major kind of cities. That's actually what the majority of women are doing.
0: And the women in domestic service, I mean, mm-hmm. what kind of jobs were they, were they paid? Did they vary a lot? Was there really good jobs in domestic service and a poor kitchen maid or something.
4: Exactly. So there's a hierarchy within domestic service and a lot depends on the houses you're working in. So it would be quite normal for a middle-class family in 1914 to have one live-in servant. You see that a lot if you look at the 1911 census, actually. And that live-in servant would do a lot of the... Can day to day work within the house they would live there, they would get paid but they'd also, it would be their board and lodging would be subtracted out of that so what they get paid would not be a huge amount and they wouldn't have a huge amount of freedom because they'd be sort of on call you know, a lot of the time, they'd start very early work very late, and a lot of it would be very you know basic drudgery, cleaning cooking etc. I mean, we must remember of course that before modern household appliances there's a huge amount more work involved in the actual running of a family home
0: Did they get much time off?
4: No, and that was always an issue of contention. Mm. You know, might get an afternoon off on a Sunday. And so they always were looking for jobs where with less strict conditions. And that's actually something that very much comes up during the war. People are willing to look for jobs that gives them more freedom.
0: And then when the war broke out, did it mean there were new jobs and other opportunities?
4: It did, yeah. And this is for two reasons. So over 200,000 Irish men voluntarily served in the British Armed Forces during the First World War. And this, of course, left gaps on the home front. So there's men who you know, leave their jobs behind and they need to be filled by people. Now, there is high unemployment in Ireland before the war. So there's men you know, willing to take those jobs, but there's also vacancies arising for women. But also the war itself creates new opportunities. So there's a huge amount of bureaucracy created by war, a huge amount of paperwork that needs to be done. And so clerical jobs open up to a you know, much greater extent that are very much led by the war office. And then, of course, you get munitions factories. You get also women nurses who have new opportunities to travel beyond Ireland, to take on higher paid work. You've... Organisations such as the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, the Women's Legion, the Women's Royal Naval Service, which all employ Irish women on paid work during the First World War.
0: And to get a clerical job, did you need to have a lot of education? Was education open to women anyway?
4: Yeah, so education for women is expanding in the pre-war period and there's more opportunities available to them. They can go to university now and they can take degrees. There's quite a while where they could attend university but not actually get a qualification at the end of it. But that is changing. And there's... Adult literacy is very common, you know, at that time, be more common than not to be able to read and write, isn't it? And so for a clerical worker, you typically had to take on a course in shorthand typing or something like that. And there's a real demand for these during the war because there's an awareness that there's more vacancies for women in clerical work than there are trained workers. And at first, there's women trying to go in, especially kind of middle class, upper class women, trying to go into clerical work without any training. And but quickly realising that this isn't going to work. And so there's various organisations putting on training for them specifically to fill the gaps by the men.
0: And was this younger single women or did married women work?
4: So it was mostly younger single women. And the tradition was for women to leave the workforce when they got married. And many employers were very reluctant to hire married women. You do, in some professions, you do get married women working in sort of domestic professions and char women, that kind of thing. You do have married women or women taking on work to do at home, laundry and so forth.
0: You mentioned as well that a lot of them worked on farms and that was mm-hmm. a bit, not didn't really count. As farm labourers and even farmers went off the fight, was more and more farm work left to women? Did women run
4: farms? They did, Yeah. 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 And so there is more work for women farm labourers and there's actually attempts to formalise this to get women from urban areas, from the middle classes, to take on farm work in rural areas and to join the Women's Land Army and various other initiatives. These aren't very popular in Ireland.
0: And was this a very visible thing? Was this the kind of uh, conductor on the tram or something like that? Did women suddenly appear in workplaces?
4: They did it, to a certain extent. And you do see it remarked a, a bit in diaries and letters from the period, particularly stuff like women clerks and banks, that kind of thing. Even women waitresses in the Kildare Street Club, you know, some sort of a male haven, that kind of place. We wouldn't expect to see women. You have women working on the railways to a greater extent and suddenly becoming more visible. But a lot of the time, they're still in kind of behind the scenes roles, or so you have examples that are commented on a lot, but are not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily mean there's a huge amount of change, if that makes sense. So when there's a woman who's working a high profile, visible role, it's commented on a lot, but in a way it suggests it's not really that normal. There aren't that many women doing it. So in Britain, many women are entering the workforce and becoming a lot more visible especially as bus conductors, and that's something that's commented on a huge amount. But that's because of conscription. And so without conscription in Ireland, it has some effect, but it's not as much of an issue as it is in Britain.
0: And would the women who worked in the Killaire Street Club have been able Mm. to wear a suffragette badge? How did they feel? I mean, again, was it a thing that politicised them? Did work make them feel more entitled to things?
4: Yeah, definitely. You do get a sense of empowerment to work and a sense of women re- recognising their self-worth and, and their role in society. And especially, there's suddenly a need for women in the workforce and you know, advertisements calling on them, especially as munitions workers. And the majority of those munitions workers in Ireland are women. And there's very much a sense of the war effort depends on you. And you know, that's very empowering for women. And it gives them a greater sense of, of their value as workers. And you see this largely, actually, in regard to the trade union movement.
0: Did it pay well?
4: Munitions work? Yeah. It did, yes. So, for example, you have um, Florence Lee, right? In 1914, she's a dressmaker's apprentice. She lives in Dublin. She's from Sandy Mount, And she earns two shillings a week in 1914. By 1918, she earns 50 shillings a week. Right, which is a massive increase. And she's working in the Dublin Dockyard's munitions factory. And so you can see there, you know, a significant jump in her, in her wages over those four years. The trade union movement, various other, the demand for munitions workers meant that wages in munitions increased hugely over the course of the war. And they were very competitive compared to domestic service or other traditional female occupations.
0: Did that mean that women had spending power that they didn't used to have? Do you have any sense of what they, what they bought?
4: Well, actually, women's spending power is something that's commented on a huge amount in the wartime press. And there's actually a lot of concern about what munitions workers in particular might be spending their extra money on. And there's talk about them dressing in furs and buying lots of jewels. But the most concern is about them spending the money on alcohol. And so there's generally a concern about women drinking during the war, particularly the wives of soldiers who have their separation allowances, but also munitions workers in the sense that women can't be trusted with this extra money. Now, it is also very true, however, that there's a huge amount of inflation during the war. Prices of basic foods increase hugely over the course of the war. A loaf of bread in 1914 was four pence by the end of the war that it doubled, you know. So a lot of their wages are actually going on just surviving. Some of them do put the money aside and they use it to look after their families and to save for afterwards. But a lot of the munitions workers are coming from very, very poor backgrounds. So if you look at the tenements reports from the time, you have quite a number of munitions workers that are living in tenements. And in the, you know, very, very poor conditions, you have multiple families in the one building living in one one room homes. And you also have soldiers' wives living in these. And so they might have a bit of extra money during the war, but the starting circumstances are such that, you know, it can't really go very far.
0: Was there any truth in the fact that there was more women drinking? Were there places they could go? I don't don't know, could they go to pubs? Did it mean they had more of a social life? Did it mean they had more contact and discussed things more?
4: They could go to pubs, but they weren't very welcome in them. (laughs) And it was very much women drinking in public was very frowned upon. But there is, you know, there is certainly some evidence that women did drink more and that it becomes a bit more socially acceptable. There's a lot of concern that they're drinking too much, and there's a you know a huge amount of increases in drunkenness and neglect with these women of their children and so forth. Was
0: there concerns about their morality
4: yes, very much so, yeah. especially sort of soldiers on the street, women with too much money interacting together, you know it's a worrisome combination,
0: so it was an interesting time
4: very much so, yeah. very much so
0: neve, just to come back a little bit with a lot of the suffragettes we were talking about, would many of them been working were they of the right class or of the right age was it something that was part of the suffragette movement?
3: Yeah I mean there was a mixture but just maybe to follow on on something Fanula said there, that was another towards the end of the war in 1918 there was a lot of public kind of worry about VD, venereal disease between the soldiers and the women and a lot of the women came together to kind of protest because I think it was regulation 40D, it was basically a law brought in that women could just be arrested subjected to a medical examination and if they were found to have VD they were put into the lock hospital. So it was really inhumane, really cruel and again and the women were blamed for this. So Kathleen Lynn, Constance Markievicz, Maud Gon, they held a large public campaign against it. But there was another angle on how the war brought the women together who yeah. were, you know, the Was Sofrig it much talked
0: about? Because I imagine the church at the time would have been quite conservative.
3: Yeah, they would have been. And a lot of the high profile women, they were either Protestant or they weren't religious at all. So, you know what I mean? They could kind of, fair enough, you know, they were able to come out and, and take a stand on the issue.
0: There was lots of women working then in different places, and particularly munitions factories and doing jobs that men would have done. What did the trade union movement think of this? Were they pleased to have people paying trade union dues or how do they greet it? A
4: uh, very mixed response. So there's concern about women undercutting men in the labour market because women are typically paid a lot less than men. And there's campaign for equal pay for equal work during the war, which is very much led actually by the male trade union movement. And it's a way of protecting them, actually, from the onslaught of cheap female labour. And they also come to new huge number of agreements with the government about exactly how women are allowed into the workforce and under what terms. So women can come in, they can do certain jobs, and then as soon as the war ends, they have to leave again. And it's a way of making sure that the men's jobs will still be there for them when they return from the war. So the trade unions are quite concerned about what women's labour actually means. But at the same time, you do get male trade unions opening their doors to women for the first time and, you know, realising that they should accept women, that there's a role for them to play. And then you get a number of former women's trade unions opening up during the war and expanding hugely. Our trade union membership in general explodes in all directions, as has been described, during the, over, from 1916 to 1920. And women's trade union movement is a small part of that. It's very much um, gaining in popularity.
0: Were there many nurses who actually went away to the war? Was that seen as an attractive thing to do?
4: Yeah, yeah, it was quite popular activity, actually. So over the course of the war, we have about 6,000 women in Ireland who joined the British Red Cross or the St John Ambulance Association. and These are voluntary, unpaid organisations engaging with the war effort to first aid work, largely. And of these, then, over 500 women Serve outside of Ireland and Britain, close to the front in France, in Egypt, in Malta. You know, close to where the soldiers actually are, and then over five hundred women doing that. And then the home front in Ireland and Britain, we've a further over three thousand women serving in hospitals as well. And there's twenty-seven auxiliary hospitals, which hospitals for convalescent soldiers set up during the war in Ireland for these for the wounded soldiers.
0: Back on the factories again. I'm just curious. As women went to work, was it the first time women worked in factories? I mean, were there women's toilets and things? How did did that work?
4: I've never actually thought about the question of (laughs) women's toilets in relation to factory work. But no, so there there was a tradition of women working in factories to some extent, particularly in Belfast. The textile trade in Belfast employed quite a number of women before the war, and particularly in linen, and a number of these were in factories. Mm-hmm. And so during the war, a lot of these factories converted to producing munitions. So we have Mackey's factory in Belfast, for example, which is a textile machinery plant. And during the war, then, it converts to producing bombs, grenades, shells, and it employed a significant number of women to do that work.
0: Was there any sense that some of the women who worked in the munitions factories might have been anti-war? Was there any contradiction there between them earning a good wage and having that independence, and yet being part of the war machine
4: The closest I've come to it in an expression from a munitions worker is it's actually from Belfast and they, they write this journal it's like a magazine for munitions workers in the factory and one of the it's very generally it's very patriotic and full of sort of stories of factory life there's one entry by a woman who writes about her sense of disquiet about the fact that she's producing agents of human destruction and, you know, her sort of concern about her, her role in this sense. And, you know, because obviously doing nursing or sort of stuff like that, you're alleviating the horrific effects of war. But as a munitions worker, you're helping to continue it. And so she She expresses a lot of disquiet and uncertainty about her role. And she does end down um, kind of saying, well, if we don't keep this up, the chances are that our own city might be bombed. And so it's a sense of we don't like what we're doing, but we feel we have to continue But you don't really get a sense of people objecting to their work on political grounds. And actually, the loyalty of the Dublin munitions workers is stressed very heavily after the Easter Rising. They said, look at these people had access to, you know, to bombs, to grenades, and they stayed loyal. And this is very, you know, the people involved in these factories, the Home Rule MPs who are lobbying for more munitions contracts to be granted to Ireland, are constantly saying, you know, the munitions workers were all very loyal, we don't need to worry about them. And because, obviously, you have to trust them because you know, they're in a position of fairly strong power in that sense. So you have a lot of Irish women travelling to England during the war looking for munitions work. And I've come across one example of women who were actually sent back home to Ireland because they started singing Sinn Féin songs, this is in 1917, and wearing white, gold and green and, well, according to the British workers, teasing the British workers. And then eventually there's actually a brawl between the English girls and the Irish girls and the Irish girls are sent home. 'Cause it seems they can't actually mix. Yeah. So you do get, you know, a sense of you know, displaying their nationalism abroad. But I don't know, it's always a little bit different doing it in England than doing it at home, I suppose.
0: And then when the war ended and mm. the soldiers all demobbed and came back,
4: mm-hmm.
0: what happened to all the women at work?
4: A lot of them immediately lost their jobs. So um, the war ends November eleventh, nineteen eighteen. By 20th of November 1918, the number of the Dublin munitions workers had already lost their jobs, 300 of them. And over the following six months, most of them, almost all of them, lose their jobs. And factories close very, very quickly. And there's actually not a huge amount of employment for the women. Because, of course, the war industry is gone and the men are coming home looking for the jobs. Some of them had been promised to them before they left in the first place. And so you have many women returning to domestic service, but out of extreme reluctance and looking for many other opportunities. And many are choosing to emigrate because they've no other choice.
0: And was there any areas like maybe in all those hospitals where there were still lots of wounded men coming back? That they, was nursing still a place where women could work? Or Yes, yes, yeah. definitely.
4: There's more opportunities for nurses. There was also concern within the nursing profession, among trained nurses, that the volunteers from the war would threaten their jobs because you've this massive influx of volunteers doing nursing and they're threatening a skilled profession. And so the nursing bodies are very anxious to put in place restrictions on and who can be called a nurse immediately after the war and introduce a register to kind of protect their own employment in that yeah. sense. You do get women who had served as voluntary nurses during the war then undertaking that training to continue in that role. And seen as quite attractive. Um, and was
0: there simply a sense then of thanks very much for your help during the war and now uh, go back to your
4: yes. kitchen? Yes, very it? much yeah, so, yes. Yeah. And they sort of an assumption that that's what they'd want to do anyway, that you know, they entered the workforce due to exceptional circumstances and that, you know, now that their men had come home, they didn't want to go home and get married and have children and so forth. And you do get some women who are happy to do that and who ha- you know, are quite relieved when the war ends and say, I can't wait to, to, you know, to after their to leave wild my job. years
0: with the money and the pubs. And exactly, stuff, exactly, and just saying, settle, so settle,
4: settle down now, you know. Okay, well,
0: maybe we'll hold it there for a moment, and we'll go to the audience for a couple of questions.
1: You mentioned that in 1913, around the, 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 you know, the big strike, mm-hmm. you said that the union workers and some people from the suffragettes worked together. Given that the social class was so strict and you know, there was yeah. very little interaction if the suffragettes came from the upper and and middle class, how did that mix work?
3: I mean, I suppose it's a good question in the sense that it wouldn't have been completely smooth either, and I'm sure that there would have been some, you know, residual kind of suspicion or scepticism among them. But I suppose, you know, With the lockout, I mean, it went on for months. They were in, they were ladling soup. And I suppose the middle class women saw very much, this is the reality for people who are, you know, the wives of locked out workers. So it was very much an eye opener for them. And then for the working class women to see, you know, these middle class women here, doing the work ladling soup so it was something that really I suppose forged alliances broke down barriers and then the other very important event that happens in 1913 is the Cat and Mouse Act so when the legislation changed it was to do with the UK where when the suffragettes were force fed the government brought in the Cat and Mouse Act and basically because there was such a furore about women been force fed they decided that when they would go on hunger strike that they would be released from hospital and when they regained sufficient health they'd be re-arrested so it was almost like a revolving door of been arrested released arrested it could go on and on and it was considered to be very inhumane so the Irish women came together and again it, you know this was how they, they didn't have near FM but they, they did mass meetings on, on a corner of a street to you know to garner support and, and highlight causes and that was quite well attended and that was the meeting the Irish Women's Franchise League organised it but that was the first time Constance Markievicz spoke on a suffragist platform so again politically the women that's quite an important event as well and I was just mentioning to Kieran earlier that the only two women that were force fed in Ireland were the two of the three English women who came over to Dublin in 1912 when Asquith, the Prime Minister, was coming over and they were obviously fighting for their campaign in the UK, which he wasn't giving them the requisite attention. And what happened was he was in a carriage with John Redmond going through Nassau Street and the women threw a hatchet at the carriage. And then they escaped into the crowd and later that night tried to set fire to the Theatre Royale in Dublin. So, And then they got arrested, but they were treated quite harshly because because probably they had come over they were radicals from Britain but they were the only two women force fed but also that caused a big split in Ireland. People thought well these suffragettes now we don't really want to be you know, associating with them. And it damaged the Irish suffrage campaign because people thought, well this is too radical, it's violent, we don't want to go there. So it actually did harm. That was 1912. I was going to come in
4: briefly on this. I was to mention as well that suffragists also dug up golf courses as a former mm. protest, which I just think is an excellent way of protesting yeah. against the patriarchy. I just want to say as well on the facilities issue, I just remember that in the civil service, one of the reasons that the civil service has been reluctant to employ women after the war, and this is from a 1916 report, and it was is the lack of suitable office accommodation, and so there's three reasons: women might leave early to get married, the lack of suitable office accommodation, and some work being unsuitable for women due to the high stress nature of it. And on the office accommodation, it was assumed that men and women could not share an office; that would lead to problems of indiscipline, and it would need greater supervision. And I assume also maybe there's something implicit there about <laughs> about the That's facilities awesome. as well.
0: Yeah, uh, near FM is not endorsing the digging up of golf courses <laughs> or the burning of the Theatre Royal. Just <laughs> to ask a question about it mentioned earlier about nuns and, and be, being suffragettes. I just would like to know what the relationship between the suffragette movement and the or, organised religions. Would well, did any one religion favour suffragette? movement more than the other vis-à-vis the Catholic Church, Protestant Church
3: so. I honestly wouldn't be able to answer that, suffice to say that just having read you know, different testimonies over the years, sometimes and more than anything nowadays, there would have been certain high profile women and they may have had a, a radical nun as an influence in their lives, but by and large they wouldn't have supported the campaign there wouldn't have been, have been a relationship Are any of the
0: big employers the Quakers or any of those maybe Bewleys or those kind of groups did they tend to have a more liberal approach to women in religion than maybe the Catholic Church
4: not true suffrage, really. Yeah. Jacobs is a big Quaker employer, yeah. um, very well-known for its infamous role in the lockout. And they're very paternalistic in their approach to their workers. And, you know, they're good employers in the sense that they provide a lot of good conditions and facilities for them, but they have a very traditional view of women's role, and it's very much women's role okay. as in the home.
1: And okay. um, The first three words of the proclamation, but probably the most radical three words in the yeah. Irish men mm-hmm. and Irish women, mm-hmm. What influenced the uh, the people
3: who composed the proclamation to put those words in, and why, after we attained some level of freedom, was that idea absolutely thrown back out the door again? Well, you know, I mean, it's one of those debates. Who exactly? You know, who wrote it, but I mean, James Connolly had, you know, a massive hand in it. Thomas MacDonough would have been considered quite pro women's rights as well, of the men from 1916. And seemingly, there is an anecdote where Hannah Shee Skeffington meets James Connolly shortly before the rising, and I think she was going to go to Belfast with her young son and with Francis, and James Connolly tells her not to go. He's kind of ambiguous about what he says, but he basically tells her to kind of hang around, and he says, it's something that it's, it would be worthwhile and what's in it you'll be quite happy with and then after the rising it came out but nobody knows who that one of the men was very much against Irish women specified in the proclamation and I was at a talk before and I it might have even been here and I suggested who it may have been and somebody got very annoyed in the audience so I'm not going to what? make any what? speculation <laughs> yeah, but, but, um, but not, it would We
0: didn't invite them back <laughs> <laughs>
3: But the men were people like James Connolly. Absolutely, the women would not have had such a prominent role even in the Rising were it not for him because it was the women in the Citizens' Army that were given the highest profile role and they were given the most active role and that was his philosophy.
0: Okay, maybe just to wrap up, after the end of the war and the founding of the Free State, is there any sense that women did better in the UK or were they better in the new Free State? Which way did it go?
4: Well, on the suffrage issue, women in the free state get the vote, the full suffrage, mm. six years before women in Britain or Northern Ireland. Mm. So women 1922, women in the free state get full suffrage. It's 1928 before they do in Britain. So, you know, on that issue, certainly Irish women are ahead. Now, in other aspects in relation to employment, there's definitely aspects of the free state that's more conservative. And a lot of this relates to placing restrictions on women's role in, in employment, which gets... A lot of these get rolled out in the 1920s and 1930s. The marriage bar gets introduced, forcing women to give up their jobs upon marriage. And there's other restrictions on industrial workers and forcing them to... Limitations on the amount of women can be employed in the industry. Now, there are restrictions in Britain at the same time, just after the war, but... There's more of them coming true in Ireland, and it's sort of part of a certain ideology. The 1937 constitution, of course, is very controversial with its insistence that women's place is in the home. And I think actually stating that in the constitution gives a sense of the general attitudes within both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, come to Gael at the time, too, towards women's role and a sort of sense of
3: you know, where, they, where they should be. And I think that when you move into the early 1920s and the civil war breaks out you know the free state is extremely harsh on women there were 500 women held in Kilmainham Jail during about six months of 1922 and I think when the centenary of that comes around you know in one sense it was actually a much harsher time for women and a lot of the women were either in jail or they were out on the streets you know campaigning for their friends to get out of jail so Markovic spent a lot of time in jail or on the run Hannah Shee Skeffington would have been at the street corners trying to garner petitions get signatures campaigning against it Maud Ghosn was arrested Charlotte Despard she sat outside Kilmainham Jail every you know, for 20 days in solidarity. So the women's passion then moved to, they set up an organisation called the Women's Prisoners Defence League. So energies went into that. And then politically, when, you know, De Valera came to prominence, things went backwards for women in quite a big way.
0: And it'll be interesting, as you said, to see how that is celebrated or commemorated in 1922 Okay, we'll have to leave it there for this evening and we're going to return to Moira for a final song, but before we do just to remind you that we'll be back next week with a look at the Royal Dublin Fusiliers and how the Great War is remembered. So, us to Niamh, Fanula and Moira thanks to the staff at Coolock Library for all their generous support and thanks to all the team at Near FM. So final words to you Moira.
1: OK, thanks. So the last song I'm going to sing is Salonicus, which is basically a slagging match between two women in Cork. The One is a seppa, so she'd be the wife of a soldier getting a separation allowance. And the other would be the wife of a slacker. So somebody who wasn't in the army. And you can decide for yourself. I'm, I'm not going to sing all the verses, but you
2: can decide for yourself who comes out on top anyway. Me husband's in Salonika. I wonder if he's dead, I wonder if he knows he's got a kid with a foxy head, so right away... So right away, so right away, Salonica, right away, me soldier boy. When the war is over, what will the slackers do? They'll be all around the soldiers for the loan of a bob or two. So right away, so right away, so right away, Salonica, right away, me soldier boy. And when the war is over, what will the soldiers do? They'll be hopping around on a leg and a half and the slackers they'll have two so right away so right away so right away Salonica, right away me soldier boy Detax tax de Coliseum de tax in St Mary's Hall why don't detax tax to de Bobby's Wit Stare backs against the wall, so right away, so right away, right away, Salonica, right away, me soldier boy. It takes us up to Blarney. Till is a son de us grass. De puts us in de family way and lives a son ass So right away, so right away. So right away, Salonika, right away, me soldier boy. And when the war is over, what will the slackers do? For every kid in America, sure, in Cork there will be two. So right away, so right away. So right away, Salonika, right away me soldier boy I'll never marry a soldier a sailor or a marine but keep your eye on the Shin Fin boy, and his yellow, white and green so right away so right away so right away Salonica, right away me soldier by. so right away Salonica, right away me soldier boy <clears throat> This programme was funded by the Broadcasting
4: Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee.